everybody. Welcome back to the Right Life Project podcast. I'm your host, Jim Yort. If you've been keeping up with the podcast so far, you know that we've been covering some of the fundamental concepts that underlie the right life approach. In a nutshell, what I call a right life is one in which you're as aligned as possible with the uniquely human needs and capacities that you have, that themselves exist in a configuration that's unique to you. It involves meeting those needs and exercising those capacities as much as possible in the four dimensions of your life, the psychological, physical, social, and vocational, and also capitalizing on the way they influence each other. So far, I've touched upon a few concepts that are critical to crafting a right life. The first was redemption, which isn't just a matter of overcoming adversity, but of fulfilling your potential as a human being, which is an innate drive that we all share. The second was mindfulness, which pertains to the awareness that you bring to the unfolding experience of your life, and therefore is also universal. Last time I talked a bit about the social dimension of your life, the bare bones, basic social needs you have, and then the deeper ones, the satisfaction of which help make the difference between surviving and thriving. Today I want to pause and highlight a few of the ways in which the concepts we've covered so far are interrelated. Let's start with mindfulness. As I explained in that podcast, there are a number of benefits of cultivating awareness and acceptance in your unfolding moment-to-moment experience of life. There are physical health benefits and also mental health benefits. Those mental health benefits arise in large part from learning to take your mental activity less seriously. By that, I mean with practice, you can recognize your thoughts as the electrical, biochemical phenomena that they are, with no more or less substance than anything else you perceive. Your ability to think is amazing and thoughts are great, no doubt about that. It's just that while they're only one of a practically infinite number of things you can be aware of in any one moment, they often consume a disproportionate amount of your energy. And what's more, they remove you from the actual experience of your life. So mindfulness meditation practice helps you keep things in perspective. With continued practice, something else that's very interesting can start to happen. The better able you are to see your mind as the thought factory that it is, the more difficult it can become to identify a thinker of the thoughts. That is, if you start paying attention to the way your thoughts emerge, exist, and disappear, it seems to happen without much involvement on your part. Your brain spontaneously thinks itself, as it were, just like your ears hear all by themselves, without you having to tell them to hear. It's hard to find some part of you that's actually doing the thinking. Okay, now that's a bit esoteric, and I don't want to lose you. Also, I need to emphasize that you shouldn't take any of what I say about the benefits of mindfulness practice or things that you may discover through practice at face value. These are things that you need to experience firsthand in order to understand them, and it's not something I'm asking you to take on faith. 
I'm just giving you a sneak preview. That having been said, for the purposes of this talk, maybe we can work under the following assumption. That as you loosen the grip that your mind and thoughts have on you, as you come to see your thoughts as ephemeral phenomena rather than concrete truths, that the sense that you're a standalone individual unit, completely separate from the rest of the universe and everyone in it, tends to fall away a bit too. Now intellectually, you can probably agree that while you're an individual, in that you possess a body, a consciousness, and an experience of life that is unique to you, you're also part of a much greater whole, inextricably connected to your environment. That includes the inanimate parts of it, as well as the living creatures in it. You can see this interdependence at work when changes happen, say, in an ecosystem, and the animals adjust to it. And in your life, when someone says something hurtful to you, and your feelings are affected, we're constantly affecting our environment and being affected by it. Mindfulness practice, then, can bring you into a more embodied awareness of this interconnectedness which has benefits of its own. For one thing, it lets you be much more flexible and creative when it comes to blazing a trail through life. Mindfulness helps you to be less constrained by that short list of reactions that the primitive parts of your brain rely upon, and better able to consider wiser responses that are in the best interests of your most genuine self. So you have more and better options that way. Also, because it cuts the self versus other distinction down to size, it enables you to be more open to connection with a wider variety of other people, because you're better able to appreciate how much we have in common with each other, and not just the differences. It seems to me that nowadays the world could stand a little more appreciating of others as kindred spirits. A couple of years ago, I was in the planning stages of a workshop with a few other people. It was supposed to be about helping people navigate transitions in their lives, being more at peace, and achieving personal growth. These are the things I like talking about and working with clients on, of course. The other workshop leaders were going to be a career counselor, a yoga instructor, and someone else I can't remember. I was coming in with Right Life Project concepts. So we were sitting around planning this thing, going over what everyone would talk about. I laid out the plan for my couple of hours, which included talking about redemption, as you might imagine. At the time, I was employed by the L.A. County Department of Mental Health, working with clients with severe mental illness, situations of homelessness, histories of addiction, and horrible trauma, all kinds of incredible challenges. And I was fortunate enough to be able to work with them and bear witness to some of the most courageous, hard-fought, inspiring stories of redemption. I was going to share an example of one of these stories at the workshop, just in general terms, not disclosing anything confidential. But I was going to share an example as a way of getting at some of the fundamental concepts that allow people to negotiate difficult life transitions and achieve higher levels of functioning through them. To illustrate just how deep and powerful that drive can be, that we can set free. Well, that idea didn't go over so well. The other three people 
looked like they had seen a ghost when I told them that. No, 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 they said, you can't say that. The people attending this workshop are going to be professional types. How are they going to relate to a story of someone who's been homeless? You'll alienate everybody. So I sort of got the willies at the prospect of not being able to talk about things like that. And I excused myself from the workshop so they could do the kind of workshop they wanted to do. Their attitude was pretty much the antithesis of what my work is about, and not because I'm on some kind of high horse. It's because that attitude denies the reality of our interconnectedness and the universality of the human experience of difficulty and the drive to fulfill our potential. When those realizations are thwarted, in favor of this faulty belief that we're islands unto ourselves, or that this group of people is on one island and everyone else is on another, then you're not doing anyone any favors. Perhaps I should have stayed to argue my case. Maybe if I'd disclosed that I myself was homeless as a child, that would have at least helped by planting a seed. But frankly, I was irritated and disappointed, so I just didn't. But certainly it's a widespread attitude that there are differences between people that are so vast that understanding the other is precluded. From a certain close-up perspective, that's true. As I mentioned in the Redemption podcast, the details of our lives obviously vary a lot in their objective depths and heights. But the thing is, you can't appraise someone else's experience of life solely on the objective facts. For one thing, pain comes in different varieties. Clearly, most people could never understand the trauma borne by someone who discovered their murdered sibling's body when they were a child, for instance. On the other hand, someone having borne that trauma may not be able to comprehend the different flavor and depth of pain carried by a middle-aged person who's never received the words, I love you. What's more, it's impossible to gauge someone else's life experience objectively because even their own experience of it isn't objective. As with physical pain, individuals' psycho-emotional pain thresholds vary because of the intrapersonal, social, biological, and environmental factors that color their experience of a situation. What may seem to be a minor slight to someone else may touch a deep, open wound within you that others can't comprehend. Anyone who's been told you're too sensitive probably understands this. How you metabolize the ups and downs of life depends on the events themselves, how you experience them, how you give meaning to them, how you respond to them, and how well you're able to integrate them with what's come before. As the events of your life unfold, the way you integrate them into the continuum of your life story is influenced by what has come before, your idea of who you are and where you're headed, and your flexibility. While life events themselves may be objective checkpoints along a horizontal timeline, the way they're organized vertically into a storyline is open to interpretation, like the way columns of beads can be moved up and down in an abacus. As a result, from the driver's seat, our experience is entirely relative and subjective. I once went on an off-road motorcycle tour 
with this guy who years before had been riding his motorcycle through the pit area in preparation for a race and accidentally ran over and killed a man. He was pretty blasé about it. He thought the pedestrian had been careless for walking there. And while he would have preferred not to have hit him, his attitude was pretty much, oh well. This accident might have haunted someone else for the rest of their life. One person's setback is another's disaster. One person's momentary victory is another's summit. You really have no way of knowing how another would experience your situation, or vice versa. Often we don't even have enough information about others' lives to even begin to make a valid comparison anyway. For different reasons, people can construct public images that are incongruent with their private or internal lives, and they vary in their tendency to disclose the darker chapters of their lives to others. The lighter chapters, too, for that matter. So even with the person you think you know well, you may still be working with incomplete data. Often people fill in the blanks with their own guesses and projections, muddying the waters even further. Ultimately, all we can really do is acknowledge the uniqueness of the struggles we all face, and that all of us struggle one way or another. Who hasn't been stung by betrayal, or felt the lonely despair of not being seen or heard when in need, or feelings of deep loss or sadness, or any number of other wounds? Measuring the caprices of your life against the next person's, or retreating to your island with a small subset of the human race, can leave you feeling hardened and alone, unable to tap your heart's fullest capacity to connect with others and extend and receive compassion, which are two of those capacities you need to exercise in order to be firing on all cylinders as a human. The solution, then, would be to practice letting go of the tendency to objectify, quantify, and compare the magnitude of your joy and pain with someone else's. To try to come to a real embodied understanding that everyone else's unique situation yields an experience of the world that feels every bit as real and legitimate to them as it does to you. Knowing that you aren't the only real person in a world full of avatars. In these ways, you may find yourself coming into a more expansive connection with others, in which your heart opens a bit to them and you feel like you have more company, which will help you, well, both of you actually, exercise those human connection and compassion muscles. The people who keep their blinders on aren't bad people. It's a natural human tendency to cling to the illusion of utter independence, even when it's holding us back. The ego runs very deep in our brains, and it doesn't go quietly into the night. It's just like our mind's tendency to be mindless, or the greater ease with which we choose options that harm us in the long run, instead of the opposite. When it comes to functioning at your highest level, the thing that seems easiest feels that way because it's backed by the most powerful or influential urge at that moment, and rarely because it's the best thing. Now, we've covered a lot of territory, right? Mindfulness, redemption, social connection, narrative identity, compassion. Does it seem like I'm all over the place, or do you see how all these concepts, as different as they may seem on the surface, 
actually overlap quite a bit and can support the others? These concepts are like us. So today I've highlighted just some of the many ways that you can attune to the individual aspects of your life, their interdependence with each other, and your interconnectedness with others, in order to achieve a higher level of well-being using some insight and finesse, not some one-dimensional, one-size-fits-all, brute force type of approach. There's a lot more to come. If you visit the website, I'll have some notes and links on the show notes page for this, which is podcast four. Please take a moment to go to iTunes and provide a rating and review of the Right Life Project podcast. When you do that, it helps the podcast to be displayed more widely to people who are podcast shopping. So you can help me get the word out. Also, please visit the website and join the email list. There's an announcement coming up very soon with something in it for you that you don't want to miss out on. And if you're on the email list, you won't. So with that, I thank you very much for listening and for your support. And until next time, I wish you all the best in your pursuit of your right life.